Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what would happen if there was no gravity anymore? If gravity just stopped, what would happen? Well, if we were unfortunate enough to be outside, we would fly right off the world and into space. If you were inside, you might survive a little longer if the building was rooted to the ground strongly enough. The, the waters of the oceans and the rivers would just fly off into space. And given enough time, it wouldn't take too long before chunks of the Earth would start breaking off and spinning out into space as well. The solar system would disintegrate. The galaxies collapse. We don't want to turn off the gravity. Thankfully, we can't. What is holding everything together? Well, the Bible says, Colossians 1.17, about the Lord Jesus, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And Hebrews, the apostle says in Hebrews 1.3, about Jesus, that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now, scientists can describe the effects of gravity, and they can philosophize and kind of try to imagine how it might work, but they really have no idea. The Bible tells us what's going on with gravity. It is the Lord Jesus holding the universe together by the word of his power. And so the Bible teaches us and experience confirms it, the book of a general, general revelation, the creation, we can see it, that it's held together by Christ. The creation is created through Christ and by Christ and held together by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's the same thing with the book of special revelation. You know that the Belgian Confession says that there are two books, the book of general revelation, which is the creation, in which all the creatures are so many letters which describe the glory of God, the creator. And so we have the second book, and, and that's the one in, uh, that's the Bible, the special revelation. And just as the, the general revelation, the creation, is held together by the power of the Lord Jesus, so everything in the scriptures centers on Jesus Christ and is held together in him. What does the scripture say? 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The entire scripture is the covenant promises of God to his people, and they all are true, yes, amen, in Christ. And if you have your Bible still handy, Luke 24.27, when the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's walking on the road uh, to Emmaus with those disciples, and they don't know who he is. And Luke 24, 27, he brings them to the Scriptures. He says, you know, you guys don't understand what's happening. You're foolish, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then 24, 27 of Luke, the Lord Jesus the resurrected Lord Jesus, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses is the first five books. The prophets is uh, basically an abbreviation for the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures that the church had at this time. So all of the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. In the same chapter, verse 44, it happens again. He's speaking this time to his disciples. And what does he say to them? Luke 24, verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, that's the rest of the, 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 the Old Testament, except for the Psalms, which is the writings, Proverbs, Psalms, Lamentations, Song of Solomon. So Moses, prophets, and Psalms, or Moses' prophets in the writings, the, the Jews call it the Tanakh. This is the, that's the abbreviation, T-N-K. That describes the entire scripture. And everything in there is written about him. So if we know that everything holds together in Christ, if we know the entire universe has its origin through the very word of Christ, if you know that the entire scripture speaks of Christ and is the word of Christ to us and points to Christ and proclaims Christ, then it's not a surprise that the catechism, when it's summarizing the scripture about sin and about salvation, very quickly comes to a laser focus on the person and work of Christ. You can't avoid Christ. Not in the physical world and the creation, nor in the scriptures. You've got to be very, very good at deluding yourself to miss Christ. So, brother and sister, if you're not hearing Christ, you're not hearing the gospel. And if you're ever in a situation where you're hearing some kind of a speech which calls itself a sermon, but you are not hearing Christ, then you need to get up and leave. Because without Christ, there's no gospel. The Lord's Day 6 focuses on the fundamental truth about who Christ is. And that truth about the person of Christ, his two natures, is more fundamental than gravity itself. If Christ is not true man and true God, then the entire scripture is meaningless. The entire history of redemption has no significance. There is no salvation. There is no hope. There is no gospel. Everything falls apart. That's why if you get a knock on the door from some person that's selling another religion or that's promoting a sect or a cult derived from Christianity, don't waste your time talking about the little things. Don't argue about whether you should be allowed to drink coffee or not or whether people should gather on Sundays or on Saturdays. Focus on what counts. Go to Christ. Ask them what they believe about Christ. Focus on Christ, because those who do not confess Christ as true and righteous man and true God, they're not Christians. They're not believers. They're not children of God. The Athanasian Creed is pretty, pretty strong on this. It begins, the Athanasian Creed deals with the Trinity in the first part, which we didn't read and the two natures of Christ in the second part. And look how it starts, the first article, page 495. Whoever desires to be saved must 
above all things hold to the Catholic faith. Unless a man keeps it in its entirety inviolate, he will assuredly perish eternally. And you remember we read the last article. This is the Catholic faith. Unless a man believes it faithfully and steadfastly, he cannot be saved. This is a question of life and death. You know, brothers and sisters, we need to know our creeds and we need to know our confessions. We need to know how to use them properly. We fight not with the creeds and confessions. We fight in that struggle which is not against flesh and blood, but we fight with the sword of the Spirit, with the Word of God, with God's truth. That's what we use as our sword defend ourselves and also to, to cut to life and to death in those with whom we are interacting. We bring the truth of God's word. That's the sword. But if you've got a sword, you need to know how to use it. And that's where the creeds and confessions come in. The creeds and confessions are descriptions of how to care for the sword, how to, how to, how to use it. It's kind of like sword drills. That's what the confession is. That's what the creeds are, sword drills. And if you don't drill in using your weapon, then you're not going to be able to be an efficient and effective fighter. You remember what we heard about this morning. Abram had 318 trained men in his house. The cities that were together with Sodom, they were living in luxury and pleasure, and they weren't really prepared for battle. And you saw the consequences of that. Brother and sister, I, I wonder how which group we would fall into when it comes to our knowledge of our weapons. Do we know how to use the scriptures? Are we using the instruction manual which the church has given us to learn how to use the scriptures effectively? Now, some people do it wrong. They take the instruction manual, they try to fight with that. You, go, you, you join the army and you're given a rifle, and you're given instructions, and an instruction manual about how to break down the rifle, how to clean it in the field, a smaller cleaning or a more deeper breaking down and deeper cleaning when you're back in the barracks. You learn how to use that weapon, and you're given all these instructions, and, you, and, you, and it's worthwhile knowing them, because it makes you a better soldier. But as good as that instruction manual is, you don't run to the battle with that instruction manual in your hand. That's not going to do anything. You run to battle with the rifle in your hand. And that's what we've got to do with the creeds and confessions. They should drive us to the Word. They should instruct us in the Word. They should train us in the Word. They should make us effective in the Word. That's what they're for. And that's why the church makes the point of every Sunday, one service reminding us of the instruction manual that we have in the catechism. And so, Lord's Day 5 concluded that our only hope is that we would be delivered by a mediator who is a true and righteous man and at the same time true God. And Lord's Day 6 will now expand on that from the Scriptures. Why is that important? Why is that necessary? There's an explanation in Lord's Day 6. So we begin with the true man. Why must he be a true man? And it has been dealt with earlier in the Catechism. We've gone over it somewhat. The, the same human nature which has sinned must pay for sin 
because we are human beings, we're connected to a federal, a covenant head who is Adam. Adam has plunged himself and us with him into sin and death. And so connected to Adam, our father, our federal head, we are under judgment. We are children of wrath. The wages of sin is death. And death is not just that your heart stops beating and you stop breathing, but death, in a scriptural sense, is eternal separation from God, because life is to be with God, and death is to be away from Him. And so, how can this be fixed? Well, there's really only one way, and so we, we see that in one of the footnoted texts, Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 16. Hebrews 2, 14 16. Hebrews 2, 14 to 16, here the apostle says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does that even mean? Well, it means that to save fallen human beings, Jesus had to be a human being. He needed to be a human being so that he could suffer, so that he could die. Because God can't suffer, God can't bleed, and God can't die. And that's what needed to happen. That's how the payment had to be made. A human being, a new federal head, a new covenant head, had to suffer, to bleed, and to die. And the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, as God, can't do that. And so, he had to become man. The only reason Jesus was born is this. He was born so that he could die. If you turn to the Nicene Creed for a moment, you'll see that the sermon title is And Was Made Man. And that's, a, that's a quote from the middle of the Nicene Creed. And you see how the creed connects the deity, the divinity of Christ, with his humanity and what he does as Messiah. And there's a real crux there. There's an important connection in that short phrase, and was made man. Perhaps four of the most important words in the universe. And you see the first part of the creed speaks about God the Father Almighty, but when we come to the second part, we, we confess one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, he's not a creature, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. So there's, there's Jesus, very God of very God, as the creed used to say in the older translation, true God of true God. And he, in all his glorious divinity, what happens? 
This is what happens. Who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And because that happened, the next parts could happen. Because he was made man, because he had a body and blood and a human soul, he could be crucified for us. He could suffer for us. He could be buried for us. And he could ascend into heaven as the first sinless human being since the fall, the new head of a redeemed humanity. he had to be true man otherwise there was no hope of salvation and he had to be a righteous man he had to be a righteous man and we'll go to Hebrews again Hebrews 7.26 this time Hebrews 7.26 and we'll read verses 26 and 27 of Hebrews For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. What does the scripture teach? The scripture teaches that those priests and those high priests of the old dispensation, and they were sinners, and they had to make sacrifices for their own sins. And you can tell they were sinners because they received the wages of sin. They died, and then a new priest had to come. And he had to do sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and then he died because he couldn't even take away his own sins, let alone the sins of the people. And there's this whole long line of centuries of men who are doing ineffective sacrifices. Sacrifices that don't work. Sacrifices that don't take away sin. Not even the room. Until finally, there arises the one who is high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he brings one sacrifice. And that sacrifice is himself. And that once-for-all sacrifice puts an end to the bloodshed. And it pays for sin. You see, what is the punishment? What is the, the punishment that sin requires? It is eternal death. And no human being can ever finish paying that for himself. You're never done. If what your sins deserve is eternal death, then you're never going to be finished by definition because eternity has no end. You will never finish paying for your own sin. You can't even get near to begin finishing paying for your own sin, let alone to begin to pay for the sin of even one other person. It just doesn't work. There's no way that a sinner can pay for sin. And that's why we need our Savior, our mediator, not just to be a true man, but a man without sin, a righteous man. Then he needs to be, says the catechism, he needs to be true God. 
Why would that be? Well, by definition, human nature is created, and being created, it is limited by time and space. We occupy a defined point or a defined volume in time and space. Our bodies are limited. They have their limits. Jesus, in his human nature, is only able to be in one place at a time. That's why we don't agree with the Lutherans when they say that Jesus in his human nature can be in heaven and he can also be in the bread of the Lord's Supper physically. That's not how human bodies work. That's not how a true human body works. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ takes up a defined place and volume in time and space somewhere in this created universe. The Lord Jesus is currently at the right hand of God. Heaven is in the created universe. And God's holiness is infinite. God's righteous wrath is infinite. So a human being is limited by definition. God's holiness and God's righteous anger is infinite. And we have a hard time with that. We actually kind of think that's a little bit unreasonable because we have small minds. We have limited minds. We can't imagine something being such a big deal because we're sinners. And so we give ourselves a break and we give other people a break. And we think, well, everything has limits, even the worst sins. But how can a sin be so bad that it requires eternal punishment? Isn't that a bit much? That's because we have no idea about the holiness of God. And we have no idea about the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. We've got a lot to learn still as believers. Now, some people think sin is kind of like smashing a $50 vase from Walmart. And you say to your child, well, that was naughty. You need to fix it. And if you can't fix it, you need to use your allowance money to buy a new one. But that's not what sin is like. Sin would be more like smashing a priceless vase, one of the, the, you know, the Ming Dynasty kind that's irreplaceable. And you don't have the funds or the means to make up for what you've done. But even that, that's a, a very weak, anemic example of what sin is and the guilt for sin. You know what it's more like? It's like pressing a button which unleashes nuclear destruction on every city in the world. And destroys them all with one button press. And then being told, well, you broke that. Now you need to fix that. You need to fix the damage. Well, you don't even know how to get started. You don't even know how to get started. You don't have the resources to pay for or to fix the damage. But even that is weak and anemic as an example compared to what sin is before the most high majesty of God. I think we'll only have a better apprehension of what this means when we finally come into glory and see the glory of God in the face of Christ and witness with our own eyes his infinite holiness and majesty before which the angels cover their faces. Then perhaps we will begin to understand from what Christ has saved us. And so Christ on the cross took that unimaginable eternal infinite wrath of God. He took an eternity of wrath, an infinity of righteous judgment and holy divine anger. And he took it all. 
He took the cup of God's wrath against your sin and against my sin. He took the eternal agony and anguish of hell, and he took that cup, and he drank it to the very last drop. The only way he was able to bear such an infinite burden was because he is not only true man, but also true God. And as true God, he had the infinite power and strength and life to bear the anguish, the eternal and infinite anguish of hell. No one else in the history of the universe comes close to being able to do what Christ did. And it is this act of atonement and expiation which obtained for us and restored to us righteousness and life. So, brothers and sisters, this could not have happened without Jesus being true God and a true man and a righteous man. And you see why the Athanasian Creed makes a big deal about it then and says there is no salvation where Christ is not known and not believed to be true God and true man. And the church spent a lot of time building these creeds. The Nicene, the Athanasian They were built over centuries of discussion and debating and studying the Word and praying and even fighting and arguing about these truths because they make the difference between life and death. So when you read the creeds, brother and sister, when you read the catechism and the other confessions, this is not something that Christians have just kind of sucked out of their thumbs. This is not some collection of doctrines that have been made up by theologians in ivory towers. This is the confession of the church as she reads the Holy Scriptures and as she is instructed by God himself through the Word and as she stammeringly, as a child, repeats back to him the truths, the life-giving truths of the gospel, and says, Oh, Father, Holy Father, you have taught us these things, and you have taught us that they mean life to us, and so we speak them back to you, and we hold them, we believe them in the heart, we confess them with our mouth, and we are ready to die for these truths. Because that's the message of the gospel. That is the only hope for sinners. And it was announced already, and you see that, we mentioned that in question answer 19, that was announced already way back in paradise, right after the fall, there comes gospel. And you remember that from Genesis 3.15, where God ordains that the seed of the woman will come, the holy seed, who will destroy the serpent and bring salvation. And that gospel... That gospel hope was embraced and believed by the patriarchs and the prophets. And we saw this morning how Abram lived in the hope of this gospel and looked forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and lived by faith. And it was foreshadowed by the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. Everything in the history of redemption, everything in the history of revelation points to Christ and longs for Christ and expects Christ with a a lively expectation. The entire Old Testament is, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Wipe away our sins and bring us back into fellowship with God. 
and he came. All the ancient prophecies and promises were fulfilled. All the law was fulfilled. All the foreshadowing of the sacrificial system was fulfilled and became reality. Imagine you're sitting in a room and it's a very sunny day. And the door is open and, sudden, and you're expecting someone and suddenly the, a shadow falls across the doorway. And you're expecting a great friend or someone you love dearly. And your heart leaps. There's no one in the doorway, but you see the shadow falling across the threshold and you rejoice. That's the Old Testament. And the New Testament is when it's no longer a shadow, but there in the doorway, there is our Lord. He has come. Isn't that what Paul says to the Colossians about the things of the old dispensation? He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's what he's saying. There was a shadow in the doorway. Now Jesus is standing there. He has come. He has arrived. Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What does John chapter 1.14 say? The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, tabernacled amongst us. God himself, Emmanuel, he became man. He was made man. Now we have this gospel. We have it inscripturated, recorded. We have it written down in the Holy Scriptures. And this gospel that we can hold in our hands, it's all about Christ. It all depends on Christ. Everything is in him. Everything is from him. Everything is through him. Everything is for him. Everything is of him. The scriptures are not some self-help manual, not some pop psychology, not some 10 tips for a healthier life or five suggestions for a better marriage. No. Today, one more time, the gospel comes to you, brother and sister. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, true man, true God, the only mediator, the only hope for the sinner, the one who is to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Have you come to that door which has over it written another with a capital A? Or are you still desperately trying to fix your mistakes in the past or in the present? Are you trying all the wrong doors to deal with your problems, with your sin? Christ, once again, is calling you, whether for the first time or for the so manyth time, He is calling you, repent from your sin, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ with true faith. So the words that Jesus spoke to Martha in John chapter 11 are words that the Holy Spirit puts before us now. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Amen.